Good morning, everybody. What a privilege we have to open up God's Word right now. So please take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 10 and stand with me. We're going to read verses 26 through 31. I'll preface this by saying these are really strong words today. Probably some of the strongest in all of Scripture. Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And Lord God, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would open it up to us this morning, that you would give us understanding and insight as well as direction in our lives. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. As human beings, we have the freedom to choose. The freedom to choose. Right now, this very moment, you are listening to me because you're choosing to. Now, you may say, You know, I'm being forced to listen to you. You may say, hey, I had to be here today. That may be the case. However, you are listening. And you have a reason for listening. Now, you may even say, I'm going to ignore you. Or you might try to ignore me. That's your choice too. But every choice we make in life, we make for some reason. We do some things because we really want to do them. We do others because we need to do them. We do others because someone expects us to do them. We decide based on what seems good to us at the moment, considering all of our options. Now, the essence of free will is that we choose according to our desires. Jonathan Edwards wrote in The Freedom of the Will that the will is that by which The mind chooses. We all make choices. I am choosing to speak. You are choosing to listen. I will to speak, and speaking is set in motion. Now, when the idea of freedom is introduced, however, things can get pretty complicated, especially when it comes to spiritual matters. So with regard to salvation and spiritual things, the question then becomes, What is the will free to choose? What do human beings desire? So let me give you two views that are prevalent. One view is that all on their own, some people desire to repent and be saved, and other people desire to run from God and therefore reap eternal damnation. Another perspective is that all human beings desire to flee from God unless the Holy Spirit does a work in them, 
changing their desires so that they will freely want to repent and be saved. For example, Saul, who became the Apostle Paul, he wanted to harass Christians. He wanted no part of Jesus until God intervened. And many of us can recall how we had no desire to come to Christ until God softened our hearts toward him. But wherever you land, wherever you land in your understanding of what I just said, the downside of free will is that some people will reject Jesus. Some people will reject Jesus, even those close to the truth. It's a painful reality we see at times in our friends and families and acquaintances and in the community and even in the gathered church. The writer of Hebrews was well aware of this. After all the encouragement of Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 through 25 comes this solemn word of warning. It's the fourth warning in Hebrews so far. And these verses show us what it looks like to reject Christ. See, verses 19 through 25 showed us what it looks like to accept Christ. That the follower of Jesus lives a a life that is characterized by worship and truth and community. But now verses 26 through 31 show us what rejecting Jesus looks like. And again, these are quite possibly the the strongest words in the entire Bible. This passage shows us the choices and the consequences of those who reject Christ. And as we're going through a book in the Bible, as we are through Hebrews, and as we're going verse by verse, I can't pick and choose uh, what I skip and what I don't. Look at verse 26. It says, for, starts with the word for. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That word for, that this, word, this sentence begins with, is a reminder that we need what verses 19 through 25 was just talking about. The fellowship of the believers, Christian fellowship. We need it all the more because some will fall away from the faith. But what does it mean to sin willfully? If we sin willfully... Now, we have to define it within its context, or we're going to run the risk of the common error of what is called eisegesis, which is reading something into the text, putting something there that isn't there, versus what God calls me to do up here, which is exegesis, which is to reveal what the word actually says and means, and not to go off in some other direction and implant something into the word that God does not intend. It's tough. But what does it mean to be sinning willfully? I'm sure you all have an idea in your head of what it means as soon as you hear that term. It's where someone keeps deliberately rejecting Jesus. That's what sinning willfully is. It's sin that's done voluntarily. It's sin that's done on purpose. And it's different from sin committed in ignorance or in weakness. We all sin. The Greek word here, though, has the idea of a habitual, deliberate sin. So the immediate context even defines sin, what that sin is. Uh, In verse 25, it's that of continually forsaking the assembly of the believers. 
and a threefold rejection of God that we see in verse 29. Trampling upon the Son of God, regarding as unclean Christ's sacrifice, and insulting the Spirit of grace. There is a huge contrast between those who sin in ignorance and wander off the path and those who radically rebel against God and his word. Now we see the idea of radical rebellion in Numbers chapter 15. In Numbers chapter 15, what we see is a picture of premeditated sin. If you look at verse 29, 27, it says... If a person sins unintentionally, then he shall offer a one-year-old female goat for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who goes astray when he sins unintentionally, making atonement for him, and he may be forgiven. So that's not deliberate, willful sin. But then it says in verse 30, but the person who does anything defiantly, which uh, whether he is a native or an alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord... And that person shall be cut off from his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and broken his commandment. And that person shall be completely cut off. His guilt will be on him. So the consequences for premeditated sin were given by God and required uh, a formal removal from the congregation of Israel and from its worship. Verse 26 says, If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, Now, some take this to mean that these are Christians who are doing this. There's other wording in this passage that also points to that idea in verse 29 where it says that they they regard as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. Verse 30 that says the Lord will judge his people. But there's answers to that. I, I don't believe we're talking about believers here. I believe we're talking about unbelievers. So how do you answer this idea of receiving the knowledge of the truth and being sanctified and the Lord judging his people? The idea of the sanctification would be he regards as unclean the blood that could have and would have sanctified him if he had availed himself of such. And the idea of the Lord judging his people. First of all, it was spoken of the Jews. These are Jews in this context who are committing this sin and also those who claim to be part of the fellowship. But after receiving the knowledge of the truth, what does the word knowledge mean? It's not the simple Greek word gnosis. gnosis. It's a stronger word, epigenosis. When this word is used, there is an assumption of a real grasping of the subject. Not a mere casual knowledge or ignorance of the subject. So you can speak of false gnosis, but not false epigenosis. So what the writer is pointing to is that the hearers have a real knowledge of the truth. It is not incomplete in terms of knowledge. It is not defective, but the application of their knowledge was. Let me give you a biblical example. A prime biblical example, actually uh, the forerunner of this, Judas Iscariot, uh, who betrayed Jesus. He didn't lack any knowledge, but he lacked faith, and he turned away. So the Jew that committed this sin in the context here, was well aware of the issues involved and what it means is that they were sinning with their eyes wide open, walking right in defiantly with a high hand in a matter of speaking. Now, as I studied this this week, I 
I kept thinking and praying and, and wanting to know who the writer's speaking of and the spiritual status of those he had in mind. Like, who's he talking about? Who's he not talking about? And it bears looking at it a little bit closer. First, who is he not talking about? Because I don't want anybody walking away today going, man, I'm, I'm doomed. I'm a believer, but I'm doomed. Now, that's, not, that's not truth. Okay, that's not truth, and I don't want you to think I said that. By the way, if you ever wonder what I said in a sermon, you can listen to it on the web and clarify. And please come ask me if you think I've said anything that is unsettling or, or even inaccurate. I, would, I welcome that. But I will say this. I don't want anyone going away from this and say, what did he say? Here's who he's not talking about. We are not talking about believers who are ignorant of biblical truth. It's not a good thing, but that's not who we're talking about. We're not talking about believers who are unaware of the issues. or We're not talking about people who clearly do not believe and are completely opposed. Let's say you have a neighbor who tells you, stay away from me, I know you're a Christian, do not say anything to me about Jesus, because I don't want any part of him. We're not talking about that person either, even though that's not a good situation. In the context here, who are we talking about? Oh, and one other thing. Um, he is not talking about believers who temporarily fall away or who lose their enthusiasm for the Lord. He's not talking about believers with oversensitive hearts that are easily self-condemned. And there are some of us here that are like that. You hear something and you immediately go straight to, I'm bad, I can't believe how horrible I am. And, and that's not what we're talking about here. That's not the road you ought to go down. Please hear me well. well who are we talking about? Who is the writer talking about? He's talking about unsaved people who on purpose go against the truth that he or she once said they did believe. Or they deny the faith he or she once said they had. People who fall away from the faith. People who were close to it but never fully embraced it. Never fully embraced the gospel by faith. Basically, it's unsaved church people. That's who the writer is talking about. And the writer is referring to the sin of what is called apostasy. Not a word we use often, but it's an intentional falling away. Defecting from the faith. Saying that we believe and then going far away and doing what the, we'll see here in this passage, the writer is saying they're doing, which is really bad stuff. <laughs> um, apostates are those who have made movement towards Christ. They hear the gospel. They understand it intellectually. They're close to saving faith, but they don't possess it. Their faith is false. Their professed faith is false. So they rebel. Now this warning, I've said it already, is one of the most serious warnings in all of Scripture. And I think I know why. Because the stakes are so high. We're talking eternity in heaven or eternity in hell. The stakes are so high, that's why the warning is so serious. Eternal punishment away from God's presence forever or eternal blessedness in his presence forever, eternally. Now, for the kind of sin that the writer's talking about, there remains no sacrifice. Now, it doesn't mean that the Christ's sacrifice was insufficient in any way. It is fully sufficient for all who come to him by faith. But what it means is they put themselves outside the realm of Christ's sacrifice being effective for them. They have refused Christ's sacrifice. They reject the only sacrifice that could take away their sins. 
They don't go to Jesus. They go elsewhere. So it has ceased to operate for them in accordance with their willing rejection of it. I'll tell you, the difference between sins committed out of ignorance and sins committed willfully is like the difference between involuntary manslaughter and first-degree murder. One is accidental, and the other is premeditated. It is on purpose. So for a habitual, established way of thinking that signifies a permanent rejection of the gospel and God's grace, no sacrifice remains. Because the one sacrifice has been ignored. Now, verse 29 tells us that the person in mind here who falls away and rejects the tri- uh, he rejects the triune God in three distinct ways. This is scary version, okay? We're in scary mode here now. Here's what they do. First, they trample underfoot the Son of God. What, what does it mean to trample underfoot the Son of God? Literally, it means to stomp on with your foot. You ever seen somebody stomp on somebody? It's not good. It, it's completely opposed to the person, so they stomp on them. It means to walk all over Jesus and who he is. It means to deny Jesus' deity, to say that he is not God. So the first thing uh, is, is pretty serious. <laughs> they also regard as unclean Christ's blood. They regard Christ's blood as unclean. What it means is they reject Christ's sacrifice. They think of Christ's blood as no better than the blood of sacrificial animals. They consider Christ's blood actually worse, to be defiled, to be unholy, not sacred, not set apart for God's use. It implies, they're implying with that that Jesus was sinful and a blemished sacrifice. Picture someone that you have come in contact with who despises the gospel and attacks Christ's work. This is who we're talking about. Someone who knows the gospel, and, but, 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 but despises it and attacks it. What else do they do? They also insult the spirit of grace. It means they refuse to believe. People who reject Jesus often do so with a boldness that's surprising, don't they? There are many who will stand up boldly and proclaim their faith in Christ. There are also many who will openly curse the only name by which they could have been saved. I heard recently, actually I saw recently when I was listening to a preacher, uh, he used a, some videos on, from YouTube. And it was about the blasphemy challenge where people would get on and videotape themselves saying that they completely and utterly reject and deny and repudiate the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I'll tell you what, it's the saddest thing I've ever watched in my entire life. In fact, I, don't want to even sh- I wouldn't even show it to you right now because it would give it credence. And I don't even want to go there. Afterwards, he did show person after person who videotaped themselves saying, I believe in the one true God. I believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved and I'm basing my entire life upon him. What a contrast. By the way, what we're seeing here today was already warned against in Hebrews chapter 3. Look at verse 12. 
My son, uh, my, my, my kids sometimes tell me I cry too easily. I don't know why, uh, but this makes me want to cry. You see, it says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. See, right next to it, it says, Encourage one another. See, if we profess to know Jesus, we've got to make sure our faith is real, not false. And we all know that our choices... The choices we make have consequences. And that's what we see next. The consequences we see in this passage are stiff as they come. No, no leniency in this regard. First we see in verse 27, judgment. Judgment. A terrifying or fearful expectation of judgment. Since the judgment has been determined to happen, it brings on fear on the person that will be judged. It speaks of a fire that consumes the, the enemies of God. A fire that consumes the enemies of God. Well, a true believer will not be consumed in God's fire. It's a reference to the lake of fire. The lake of fire, Revelation 21. In verse 8. But the cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers and the immoral persons and the sorcerers and idolaters and all liars... Their part will be in the lake of fire, the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Jesus also talks about it in the Gospels. Matthew 13. But the adversaries or enemies of God are opposed to God and his salvation program. They're spoken of also in Philippians chapter 3, in verse 18 and 19. Which says, For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who sets their minds on earthly things. And if you've come in contact with people like this, they often mock the idea of hell. They mock the idea. What else? Verse 29, there is severe punishment. This doesn't get better On this regard, by the way, we're going down a path of of consequence. Um, Choices have consequences. There's judgment. There's punishment. And it's worse than death without mercy. If if you can get worse than death without mercy, it's worse than that. How much severer punishment, verse 29, do you think he will deserve that's trampled underfoot the Son of God? In the Old Testament, it was spelled out. Verse 28 says, If anyone set aside the law of Moses, he died without mercy on the testimony of one or two or three witnesses. Excuse me. Deuteronomy 17, God spelled it out. Verses 2 through 6. If there is found in your midst in any of your towns which the Lord your God has given you a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God by transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them or the sun or the moon or any of the heavenly hosts which I have not commanded and if it is told you and you have heard of it then you shall inquire thoroughly behold it, it is true and the thing certain that, it is de- that this detestable thing has been done then you shall bring out that man or that woman who has done this evil deed to your gates that is the man or the woman and you shall stone them to death. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. You shall purge the evil from your midst. 
Man, we, we don't know how to handle these kind of words, do we? But see, what this verse 29 says is how much more severe punishment does he deserve than that? In the ancient Near East, there, one of the things people would do to show contempt for someone was to lift their foot against them. To walk on someone was an even more extreme way of showing total contempt and hatred. And a person doing this signified their complete rejection of that person. So the person who is trampling on the underfoot the Son of God is signifying their complete rejection of Jesus. And those who do so will suffer for eternity in the never-ending punishment of hell. There's more. Verse 30. You got vengeance. Now, we got, we got to think about vengeance for a moment. When I think vengeance, when you think vengeance, we think something completely different than what the Bible means. We think payback in terms of getting them back. Uh, that's not what this is. This is the avenging of wrong. God's vengeance is the payment of the wages of sin. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. The wages of sin, what we deserve for our sin, the natural outcome for our sin is death. Separation from God forever. Now this is not, vengeance in God's economy is not vindictiveness. That's, we, we join it in with vindictiveness. That's not what it is. It is this. It is full justice for all parties. Full justice for all parties. And there's one more thing. We see it in verse 31. It is falling into the hands of the living God as an enemy. God lets the just, fair consequences run its course and go into effect. Where mercy could have been had, there is judgment. You see, God's mercy holds back his wrath against sin. His mercy is realized in a relationship with Jesus Christ who took the full brunt of our sin on the cross. Appeasing God's wrath. Bringing in God's mercy to be available to all who would come to him by faith. Mercy triumphs over judgment. But enemies of God forfeit mercy. They reject mercy. So they receive the penalty for their sin because they would not bow before the one who died to take the penalty for their sin. And therein lies a challenge for us today. Will I bow before God's throne or not? Will we bow before the throne of God? We need to bow before the living God. To, to humbly come to him, uh, the one with whom we have to do, the only one we can go to, the only one with words of life. And we need to approach his throne with a, a gentle and a humble heart, a, aware of our great need of his mercy and grace and forgiveness and love. And aware of his ability to meet that need. What C.S. Lewis said of Aslan, the lion, is true of Jesus. He is not tame, but he is good. 
He is good. He is the living, all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present God. And he is the giver of every good and perfect gift that we receive. So we ought not, as it says elsewhere in Hebrews, neglect so great a salvation. Because the decision not to follow is a decision to reject. I brought something with me today that I've, I brought one other Sunday a while back. And it hangs in my garage. It's a life preserver. And it just says, Jesus saves. It's a constant reminder every time I go out to my garage where salvation is found. There is nowhere else to go. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved but the name of Jesus. So just as you throw out a life preserver to a drowning person, we want to share the gospel with those who are perishing. Jesus Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. He came that the world would be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And the very next verse says, God did not not come into the world to condemn the world but that the world would be saved through him but also that the one who does not believe is already judged. They refuse to believe. So for us, what do we do? You know, we've got to be aware of our need to bow before the living God. But there's a second challenge for us today. And it does lead us to this table that we will celebrate this morning. We need to be very sure of our standing with God. Very sure of our standing with God. A lot of us will will say, is he talking about me? Is the writer talking about me? When our hearts are in the right place, when we read a passage like this, we first put it through the grid of our own life. We just, we, just make this, we just let it run through us. Is it about me? Yes or no? Remember, who the writer is talking about and who he's not talking about. We're not talking about believers who are ignorant of biblical truth or who are unaware of the issues or, or temporary fall away or lose their enthusiasm for the Lord or commit some sin. We're not talking about that. He's not talking about believers with oversensitive hearts that are easily self-condemned. He's talking about unsaved people who say they're saved and then deliberately go against the truth that they say they believed. Unsaved church people. People so close to it, but who never fully embrace it. See, the Lord knows those who are his. The Second Timothy 2 tells us that. And a true believer may stray into sin and away from intimacy from, with God. The Lord is going to discipline that true believer. And they will be under so much conviction, they won't stray permanently. They will repent. They will forfeit times of peace and joy and other blessings, but they'll repent. And the thing we've got to remember is we know the truth about ourselves and nobody else. This is the only heart that I can examine. It's not our job to figure out who is an apostate and who is backslidden. We are not to try and figure out who's a carnal believer and who's an apostate unbeliever. That's God's job. So we need to be concerned as to whether we are true and faithful believers. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God as an enemy. It is a wonderfully comforting thing to fall into the hands of the living God as his friend. 
That should bring a smile to our faces and joy to our hearts. Those of us who know Christ. God is a God of heartfelt, compassionate mercy and love. You look at the cross. The cross reveals the reality of our sin. It points it out. And the reality of God's judgment upon it. Clear. But it also points out the reality of God's love. But the cross shows how deep and how wide and how long and how high God's love is. And the death of Jesus was God's provision of his love for us. So today, be blessed. Be blessed through faith in Christ and fall into the arms of a loving and living God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we come to you wanting to acknowledge how, how much we need you, Lord, to get through our daily life, to deal with the problems we're facing. Lord, we want to lift up our cares to you. We thank you that you care for us so we can cast all our cares upon you. We pray, Lord, that you would take away all fear and all condemnation for those who are in Christ. We pray, Lord, that we would walk in the light of your glory. And we do pray for those who have yet to bow before your throne. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.